0: I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord this morning. We'll read the scripture, I'll read the scripture in just a moment, but I want to begin with prayer first. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of just knowing that this is a moment that heaven is connected to earth, and earth is connected to heaven. And Father, each one of us is in a journey somewhere between the place of freedom and the place of our eternal deliverance. Each one of us is a tapestry that's under construction, and you are weaving the threads of your character in our lives. And Father, we know that it is only as we participate in that, that you are able to reform and develop and create within us. A character that will bring you honor and glory. Today, a part of that Christian armor is the sword, and we pray now as we focus our minds on this singular instrument that we can find out its relevance in this Christian journey. Send your spirit now to speak to us, we ask. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The sword. When I was growing up, I had a fictional character that I really, really, really liked. His name was Zorro. Come on, old people, say amen. <laughs> Zorro. I liked to watch Zorro. I didn't like his mask. I didn't like his hat too much. I just liked the fact that you always know when Zorro left because he left a Z on the clothing or the chest of the person that went ahead of him or that tried to challenge him. Zorro knew how to use his sword. Great guy, I found out that the word Zorro in Spanish means fox, am I right? It means fox, he was as sly as a fox. You didn't see where he was coming from. You didn't know where he was headed. But when he left, you knew that he was there. Zorro left his impression. On the heart, the chest, or the clothing, of whoever challenged him. He was the fictional character of a, an American writer named Johnston McCulley. And it's amazing that, I want to let you know, I wasn't alive in 1919, but Zorro appeared on the scene in 1919, but I saw him on television in the 70s, and uh, late 60s, early 70s, more like late 60s. Honey, don't take him too far back. And um, but I always watched him. But the thing that impressed me the most was, you know, you hear that you hear that sound, and you don't know where he went. But he always left his indelible mark on the heart of the person. The signature was his black costume, that black mask, and people always wondered who was behind that mask. But that was not the most important thing. What was important about it is how he used his sword. And, you know, as I was thinking about this message earlier in the week, because every week I asked for the Lord to give me an idea. What do you want me to talk about? And I got a phone call from someone in our church, and we had an amazing conversation. And in that conversation with the Bible study that I had been going on during the week, my wife and I read our Bibles together every day. We're still in the book of Proverbs. You know, Proverbs is so concentrated, you can't do but one chapter at a time. Because it's like it's like undiluted. Every statement is a contrast to something good or something evil. But as I was speaking on the phone, the person relayed a, a very challenging encounter they had in their home with someone challenging them on the word of God. And they said, Pastor, for the first time I've seen how relevant it is for us to really know our Bible. Because had I not known at least these texts in the Bible, I would never have been able to defend myself from this person who was coming at me. And they would not relent. They were just determined to tell me that this is what they believe and this is what the Bible says. But I knew that was not the case. And I had to fight them. And I had to do it based on the word of God. And then when I met this gentleman in the store yesterday, God reiterated again. Because he was determined to tell me that in the Bible it supports the idea that the kingdom of God is going to be built on a mountain somewhere and it's an Indian mountain somewhere and God is going to reign on earth. And I thought to myself, what has happened to the validity of the word of God? What has happened to it? We are living in an age where the Bible is becoming less and less relevant, even in Christian circles. We are living in an atmosphere where If you say the word of God says, people don't really like that because they prefer either their opinions, what the pastor said, what their denomination teaches. But when you go to the plain word of God, even if you read the scripture, people say, well, that's what you interpret it to mean. That's what you believe. That's what your church says. And even though we say, well, what do you think about it? They find evasive ways. So in this descending hour where darkness is more prevalent than light in this day and age where everything is taking the place of word of god of the word of god you can say doctrinal inaccuracies tradition social media people developing their beliefs based on what they see in a movie it is time to get back to the sword of the spirit which is the word of god And if if ever there is a way that the people of God are going to be sustained in the last days, all you've got to do is follow the traditions in the Bible. When I say the traditions, follow specifically the trajectory in the Bible. The very first approach that Lucifer took, the fallen angel, Satan, was he got Eve to question the word of God. When Jesus was in the garden of temptation, Satan attacked him, even quoting in partiality the word of God. And Jesus' defense was not, this is what my church says, or this is what the Jewish traditions teach. He simply said it without any quivering lips. It is written. And the servant of the Lord said, only those that are fortified by truth. Let me say that again. Because right now, most of us have not been brought to the place where we have to, we have to defend what we believe. Well, let me tell you something that's coming. And God is going to allow you to receive short little tests along the way to let you know that you are, are not ready yet. If you can't open your Bible and defend your faith, then you're not ready yet. And if, every, if ever there is a people that need to be proficient with the Word of God, it is a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. We ought not be a people that say, well, I think it's in the Bible somewhere, or I heard. You'll be amazed what people say is in the Word of God. Some of the phrases that sound so eloquent and so uh, ecclesiastical are sometimes just great sayings, but we repeat them so much that we think God's word says it. You know, (laughs) huh? You know, like one: "The family that prays together stays together." (laughs) You know, that's not in the Book of Haggai. No, it's not, and Hezekiah didn't write it either. But we we have these phrases that we quote and we coin them you know God's word says or Ellen White says and we are not having any foundation so since we know the devil led Eve a perfect individual down a path by getting her to question God's word we've got to get back to knowing how to use God's word we've got to be like Zorro whenever we face an adversary we've got to be able to use our sword so well that we leave an impression on their chest or on their heart amen somebody That's what the Word of God is intended to do. Not to cut them up, but to remind them, don't mess with a child of God who knows how to use his sword. I've had those encounters. That's why nowadays, um, and I would say, if you're working with the Word of God, if you're studying, and um, Ryan is a young man that I believe is way ahead of his time because he loves to study God's Word. He reminds me a lot about me, young and enthusiastic and ready for a theological fight. And, um, but I've learned through the years that uh, there's a way to use the sword and there's a way not to use the sword. And that comes only with the use of the sword. But the reason why the sword is so vitally important, look at how God describes the sword in Scripture. And I believe somebody once said, the pen is mightier than the sword, not according to God's word. The sword is mightier than the pen. Here's what God's word says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living. Some translations say quick. For the word of God is living and powerful. Just, I mean, I want you to pause for a moment. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to hold this book. I want you to think about it because God's word is saying that about this book. I want you to, you've heard this scripture before, but I want you If you're at home and you have a Bible, I want you to pick it up and just, while you're listening to the scripture, just think, is that what this is? For the word of God is living and, what else? Powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What computer program do you have that can do that? None. The closest thing we have today is the lie detector test. (laughs) The word of God is the best lie detector test. And when you look in the scriptures, you find some amazing things in the scripture, no other weapon compares to the sword. In the Bible, the sword is the only weapon connected to divinity. the only weapon. there's no other weapon there's no other weapon compared to divinity. You'll find shield, but a shield is not a weapon. it 's a defensive instrument. The sword is an offensive instrument. In the armor of God, the sword is the only thing that you have to fight. You can have the most beautiful uniform. But without a sword, you are a dead soldier. The sword is God's weapon of choice. The sword is the first weapon ever introduced in the Bible. You find there after sin, the sword was used to bar access to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. We read these words in Genesis 3, the introduction of the sword. After Adam and Eve fell, the Bible says, so he, that is God, drove out the man. Verse 24, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming together sword, which he turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. What is the Bible saying? Whenever God's word is instituted, you're not going to get by it. God will use that sword every way. Which says to me, they would try and possibly to get back into the garden, but God was turning the sword every way to keep them out. The sword is a powerful instrument. You find in the Bible, whenever an adversarial nation was defeated by the Israelites, the Bible also once again brought the sword into the picture You read in Numbers 21, verse 24, the Bible speaking about the victory of Israel. It says, then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword. I looked at that phrase, edge of the sword. I began to study why the Bible uses the phrase edge of the sword. Now, we often think tip of the sword, but it's broader than that. Because when the phrase edge of the sword is used, it is descriptive of how swords were designed. A swordsmith, back in the day, that's an understatement, would often design the handle of the sword to resemble an animal's head. That is the way that the sword was identified with whatever army owned it. It might have a boar's head at the top of the sword, a lion's head, the head of a bear. It was, it was somewhat of an icon, somewhat of an emblem. They, they carved out whatever head of whatever animal They didn't use an actual head of an animal from the wood or from the metal. They would use that in an emblematic way to describe whose army that sword belonged to. So if in battle that sword was found on the ground, they'd say, that's a Babylonian sword. That's an Egyptian sword. They always knew by the animal's head on the top of the sword. So when you look at the picture of this sword, the animal's head, naturally if the animal's head is the top of the sword, the blade is seen coming out of the mouth of the animal. And following it all the way to the edge is called the edge of the sword. This is the reason why John, as a prisoner of Rome, uses that descriptive language in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16 when he talks about Jesus. He understood better than we why he used this language. Revelation 1 and verse 16, John describes Jesus this way. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth. Look at the terminology. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Without a doubt, friends, the sword coming out of the mouth of God was emblematic of the way swords were designed in times of old. And every nation was descriptive of the sword. In the last days, the people of God should be identified as the sword coming out of our mouths. We ought to be a people when we speak, we say the word of God says. And I've learned as as I grew up in different contentions and different situations, whether on television or in a Bible study with someone, I've learned that the sword of God's word even among Christians, is not always welcome. I was having a debate on a channel in California. It was called uh, The Round Table. And there was a pastor that was debating me on the Trinity and the Ten Commandments. And I would always say when I led my answer, the Word of God says, the Word of God says, the Word of God says, the Bible says. And he paused and he said to me in the middle of the program being televised, all throughout California, he says, would you stop saying the word of God says and just tell me what you believe? I said, pastor, what I believe, it has no relevance. My opinion has no bearing on what this topic is all about. The word of God says. And this man was much older than I am. And I thought to myself, he's a pastor. His church must be in a fog. I've heard the phrase, if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. And there are a lot of people that are in the fog because their ministers have put aside the word of God, which is the only weapon that can cut through the darkness of the age that surrounds us. Without a doubt, the sword is embraced as the weapon of offense and defense. It is used for striking and blocking. The sword in God's word is the most powerful weapon. When you study the Bible, you find that it is more powerful than armies in great number. Let me emphasize that, friends. You might be fearful if you saw a lot of people coming towards you and said, "I want to challenge you in a Bible study." My wife and I in Orlando, Florida, we were invited to have a Bible study with a group of Jehovah's Witnesses. About 24 of them. I was young. I wasn't a pastor. I just barely got out of New York City after we got married. But they invited us to have a Bible study with them, and they said, "Here are the ground rules. We're only going to use the Bible. No other books." They said, "No other books. They did their homework. They thought, well, you're going to use Alan White. I said, that's fine. When we went to their house, it was in a large living room. The leader of the group had a large easy chair. We knew exactly who that was. His name was Tracy. Came back to me just now. That's what happens. Sometimes, you know, old people get a spark. And uh, it happens. <laughs> Amen, Bob. And um, <laughs> <laughs> And so... I could see Tracy in his easy chair. And he said, no more other books, no other books. I said, that's fine. And they sat us in the circle. If there's anything intimidating, here we are in a large room of people and they put us in the middle of the circle and there are people all around us. In other words, we don't know where the hit's gonna come from. And they started hammering us. They started with the nature of Christ, how he was the lesser God and his father's the greater God. He's only mighty God and almighty God. Well, when they lost steam on that one, they went to uh, another topic and another topic and the Sabbath and the commandments. And they started running out of steam because every, every subject they brought up, I took out my sword, said, next subject, next subject. And I have seen I was young. I mean, I was like, I was not as nice as I am now, but I wasn't arrogant. I was just like, next. I had that attitude like, you don't want to go there. I mean, if I had a a, a Zara sword, there'd be a Z on everybody's chest. But um, I remember very well, they got so exhausted because they couldn't use their Bible to defend themselves. And everybody started looking toward Tracy, like, Tracy, what's going on here? Because this young, inexperienced man, 30, man, we just got married 36 years ago. The little I knew then was enough to cut up everything that they were trying to come up with. So in the middle of the Bible study, he said to one of his friends, would you go get such and such a book? I said, ah, ah, no, no, no other books, no other books. And uh, you know what? So the, young, the, the reason why this Bible study came about is Angie was working with a young girl who was looking for her walk with Christ and the Jehovah's Witness was having Bible studies with her. And Angie said, you should invite us to that Bible study. Well, when the Bible study was done, I said to this young lady, I guarantee you they would not have another study with me. And they never had another study. And I had a lot of those encounters in New York, in Brooklyn, New York, on a Sunday morning, I was going to play in the park with my shorts on and my basketball on my arm, and I had on my basketball shirt and shorts. I didn't look like I knew anything. But way back then, my doorbell rang, and once again, it was a three Jehovah's Witnesses, a young man and two young ladies. He was training, and he was going to make an example out of me. Wrong house. So I didn't have my Bible in my hand, and he attacked me on the commandments. I took his Bible. I said, now, what Bible, his New World Translation, I said, well, that's close enough. What what does Deuteronomy 5 and verse 22 say about the commandments? He tried to link all the commandments, Ryan, together. I said, what does Deuteronomy 5 verse 22 says? And his Bible says, and he added nothing else. He wrote them on two tables of stone speaking about God, and he added nothing else. I said, what does the Bible say? How much more did he add? Nothing else. And the two young ladies walked away and left him standing there. like to say, you're training us and you can't even defend yourself. And I can go on and on and on and on and on and on with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And I was having a Bible study with two Mormons up in the mountains of Northern California. They made a mistake and rang my doorbell. And I said, come on in. And we had Bible studies on the book of Daniel. And they had a little short Mormon elder. They were not allowed to have cars. They came up on a bicycle. He had a short bicycle because he was a little guy. And his name was Elder Love, a little love. Well, he got interested. I started going in the book of Daniel. I'm encouraging Ryan. Keep going, Ryan. Whatever you do, keep going. I got him in the book of Daniel. He, was, he started eating it up. He wanted more. Well, the reason they sent him out two by two is they got to watch out for each other. So when he got excited, too excited, about a month later, another elder came and the elder love wasn't there. I said, what happened? They said, well, he got reassigned. He got moved to Placerville. That was like, 11 hours away, a long way away. I thought, oh, okay. And I found out that the elder in town that was in charge of him, I was going from door to door in my town giving Bible studies, and I knocked on the door of a that Mormon elder. His wife was vacuuming, and she said, no. I said, I'm a, no, we don't want... I said, what if I... Could I ask you a few questions? And I have my survey sheet about questions in Revelation. And I asked about, what do you think is the mark of the... What do you think is the... What do you, she said... I said, I said, just a few minutes, five minutes of your time. Oh, come on in. She, she opened the door. I was in. Well, it went to an hour, and she put her vacuum, cleaned it down, and we spent an hour together. She said, oh, I would love for my husband to hear this. <laughs> I went back. It was like she was brainwashed. You remember the Stepford Wives? It's like, and who are you? And where are you from? I don't think i met you before. It was like somebody took out one of the parts of her brain, she didn't even know who I was, and I thought, what happened? Well, they got to her, and I've learned through the years that when you stand on God's word, let me say that again, when you become proficient and know what you believe in God's word, no amount of army can stand against a child of God who knows his or her word. Nobody, nobody, doesn't need large numbers. That's the example we find in scripture. When God narrowed down Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300, notice how the Bible describes their victory. Judges chapter 7 and verse 20. The Bible described the victory of, of Gideon's army in a very beautiful way. Judges chapter 7 and verse 20. Notice the secret of their victory. The Bible says, Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. That blew the trumpets synonymous to preaching, breaking the pitchers, letting your light shine. They held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. Now, what I want you to notice, they didn't have a sword in their hands at all. We often assume they did. Where was the sword? And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Gideon's army did not have to raise a physical sword. Where was the sword? It was coming out of their mouths. They didn't have a sword. They had a a pitcher, and they had a torch and a trumpet. They didn't have a sword. They yelled, they shouted, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and they shouted it with such thunderous tones that the enemies were confused. God surrounded the enemies on three sides. The, uh, The last side was the back of a mountain, and the enemies ran for their lives, and all they had at their defense was the word of God coming out of their mouths. Brethren, let me say this. If you want to be ready for the last days, you have to know how the word of God works. The word of God has to be so hidden in your heart. The reason why the word of God came out of their mouths or the sword of the Lord came out of their mouths, the sword of the Lord was first in their hearts because the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks They didn't raise a physical sword. The sword of the Lord was in their mouths. Gideon's army understood where the power of the victory lies. If you want to get ready for the last day's battle and what is coming, you better become proficient with the sword of God's word. That's the reason why the devil spends so much time trying to distract us from studying God's word. You know it takes time to study God's word, does it not? It takes time. You can't hit a button like you can on Instagram, and get an answer real quickly. You can't hit a button. You can't Google. You can't Google righteousness. You got to understand it. The word of God is like a 12-course meal. You got to go from one course to the next. You got to get out the fork in the morning. Sit down at the best meal of the day. Eat it slowly. Chew it around they, they, they use it, masticate, that means chew, chew on the word of God. It's the bread of life. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, it effectively works in those of us who believe. When you believe God's word, it works. But if you doubt it, you're going to pick up a meal that you don't like? I don't think so. You got to study God's word. It has to be your daily diet because the day is coming As the Bible says in Amos, there's going to be a famine in the land. What's it going to be? A famine, not for bread and water, but for hearing the word of God. And people are going to search from east to west, north to south, and they're not going to find it. So knowing that, what should the people of God be doing? The people of God should be getting ready for what they know is just on the horizon. And if you don't have encounters with people that don't believe like you, you'll never know it. If you live a sequestered life and only have Adventists that you talk to, you'll never know it. That's why many years ago in Testimonies Volume 9, Ellen White, in the very introduction of the Testimonies Volume 9, she wrote wrote a caution to Seventh-day Adventists. She said the danger for Seventh-day Adventists is to live in a ghetto where everybody around them is their same faith. They have no reason to minister. It encourages deeper sin, and encourages no spirit of missionary work. You want to be in a place where you have to minister? Live next to somebody who doesn't believe like you. Go into the community to people that don't believe like you. Talk to people in the Walmart that don't believe like you. You'll begin to discover. Then you'll begin to understand how important it is to understand the word of God. You find also in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah the prophet was talking about the coming of Jesus, talking about the appearing of the Messiah, he described him in a way that once again associated him with the sword of God's word. Look at Isaiah 49 and verse 2. The Bible makes it clear this was a prophecy, and Isaiah the prophet used the same language to describe the work of Jesus when he came. He says in Isaiah 49 verse 2, And he has made my mouth, Jesus is saying, my father has made my mouth like a what? Sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. That's talking about a long sword. In his quiver, he has hidden me. That means, you know what a quiver is? A quiver is where arrows are hidden. God is saying, I'm ready. You come after me, I'm gonna send my son (laughs) God unleashed his son on the world, and the world hasn't been the same since. Even atheists know that he's around. Why would atheism exist if they did not exist for the cause of denying the very existence of Jesus? Why spend millions on somebody trying to deny his existence if you don't believe he does exist? Doesn't even make any sense. But when you study God's word, you'll find out that those who are trained by reading and studying God's word is a practice, I love the phrase, a sharp sword. When you study God's word and you read God's word, you discover that this is a joy that never becomes dull. Sharp sword. God's word never loses its efficacy, its efficiency. It's a sharp sword. And God's word, when studied properly, doesn't need another book to qualify it. I'm cautioning those of you that, Go to Ellen White more than you go to the Bible. When you, meet, when you meet people in the community, you better know your Bible. They don't know who Ellen White is. God has blessed us with insight, but even Ellen White says, our creed is the Bible and the Bible only. She said, if God's word had been studied as it should, we would not even need her writings. But God sent prophets to Israel of old for the same reason. They wouldn't listen to God's word, so we sent a prophets and say to them, listen to God's word. And they still didn't listen. Thank you, Bob, for that documentary, for that insert. Why should we study God's word? Once again, Hebrews 4.12, how do we know God's word is powerful? For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible also has another application for God's word. The sword is not only an offensive weapon, because when you study the whole armor of God, you have the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the gospel of peace. You have all these aspects of the weaponry, but these are defensive aspects of the armor of God. But the weapon that we all need is the sword of God's word. The sword of God's word is not only offensive, but it is also indiscriminative. What do I mean by that? Go to Samuel, 2 Samuel 11, verse 25. I'm just going to use a portion of this verse because I want to bring out something that's very interesting about God's word. The word of God is also indiscriminative, meaning you better be sure you're on the right side of God's word, because the word of God is no respecter of persons. The word of God doesn't say, well, you are a member of this club or that club, or you're a member of this church or that church, therefore I'm going to give you a break. Oh, no. If you're on the wrong side of God's word, you're in trouble. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 25. This is when David was plotting the death of Uriah. Terrible, terrible. But look at the portion of the, of the verse. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. Watch this. For the sword devours one as well as another. What does it say? The sword devours one as well as another. What is he saying about God's word? Anyone on the wrong side of the sword will be cut. Let me make it even clearer. If somebody's debating you, which we shouldn't throw ourselves into debates needlessly, because you don't know the spirit of the devil is powerful. When you... When you think that you're ready to fight against the devil, you better have on the whole armor of God because you don't just debate people for the sake of winning an argument because the devil is clever. But I don't ever shy away from them because, praise God, I never get into a debate to win. I get into those debates to open people's eyes, not to beat them up. Anyone on the wrong side of the sword will be cut. If you run into somebody from another walk of life, from another denomination, from another faith uh, group, and they really know their Bible, they can twist you into a pretzel. If you st- if you step up to them and say, well, I know it's in the Bible somewhere. I've watched some debates. I've watched some debates between Adventist pastors and others that I was ashamed of that outcome. Because I am, first of all, thank you, Lord, I I'm a born-again child of God. But I still have a little bit of Brooklyn left in me. And um, I still have a little bit of New York left in me. Okay, since you don't understand that, Donald Trump is from New York. He doesn't back down from anything. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? We don't back down. New Yorkers just don't back down. It's just a part of them. They just like, they stand up to the challenge. But I've seen people that when you get into the battle... When you are on the front line and you are there to defend a thus saith the Lord. You've got to be willing to wield that sword. What did I just say? You've got to be willing to wield that sword. I heard a statement years ago They said, don't ever take out a weapon unless you plan on using it. And the word of God is a weapon. Don't pull it out unless you know how to use it. And the only way you'll know how to use it is if you've been trained Am I right, Jason? You got to be trained. You got to practice. Because if if you don't practice, you're on the wrong side. And not only that, if you're on the wrong side of it and you don't know how to use it, it'll cut you. You'll end up being cut by somebody else's proficiency of incorrect doctrine. Not only that, if your life is out of harmony with it, the word of God will surgically dissect your life. Let me make that even clearer. If you want your life to straighten up, Read God's word. (laughs) Am I telling the truth? I discovered that when people are in sin, they don't want to read the Bible because sin will keep you from the Bible or the Bible will keep you from sin. Because it doesn't, it's like a surgeon. He'll say to you, you know, we got to cut off your right leg. Excuse me. Your right leg don't work any longer. Got to cut it off. That's how the Bible is. We got to cut that sin out of your life. Excuse me? Yeah, because it don't work anymore. You ain't going to heaven with that. And the Bible is the kind of book that will surgically dissect the sin in our lives. Can I get an amen somewhere? You want to find out how sinful you are? Read the Bible. That's why I don't like this term. You know, I have people, you know, people have good hearts. I don't know anybody with a good heart. Except if you're converted by the blood of the Lamb. We ought to have good hearts then. created a new heart, a clean heart. But generally... Human nature is horrible, deceitful, desperately wicked. Anyone or anything that seeks, also thirdly, anyone that, or anything that seeks to hide its activity or its life from the word of God, it is going to be revealed. God's word will reveal it first to you, and if you don't put it away, reveal it next to somebody else. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. The word of God is a powerful instrument Don't pick it up unless you plan on allowing it to surgically guide and and help you understand where your life is headed. Hebrews 4, verse 13. This is the continuation of Hebrews 4, verse 12, speaking about God's word. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and opened to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's Word. You open God's Word. <laughs> I was growing up, I remember growing up. And I've had this periodically in my life, and if you don't know, if you don't identify with this, you're not being honest. But in my walk, even as a pastor, there were times when God had to get me back on track. And the only way I knew that is I opened the Bible. And I thought, wow. Lord, speak to me today. We didn't have to be that. You didn't have to be that direct. Yes. You want to know where you are as a Christian? Read the Bible. The Bible will say to you, you're going to hell. This is a good time to get off the next exit. The sword of God's word is an instrument of redemption as well as an instrument of retribution. If you ignore it, it'll come after you. If you live in harmony with it, it'll change your life. This instrument of redemption was that which brought people from darkness into this marvelous light. But this instrument, God's word was used during the dark ages in a way that led people from darkness to even more darkness. When you study the dark ages, you find that during the dark ages, during the Dark Ages, the Church of Rome used God's Bible to justify their cruelty, their enslavement, and their persecution of millions of Christians. They quoted Scripture. They used the Bible. When you study slavery in early America, during the rise of slavery in America, the Bible was twisted and maliciously applied to hold blacks into subjective bondage by saying the the the, 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 the slave is subject to its master. Rather than applying the master to Christ, they applied it to themselves. The Bible was used to hold men into subjective bondage to another race. Today the Bible is being reinterpreted to accomplish a new brand of deception, a new kind of enslavement. The Bible is being used. If you don't believe that, just tomorrow morning, just thumb through some of these channels on Channel 300, go through some of the local channels, you'll find all kinds of false doctrines being promulgated from from pulpits around the world and is all being tied to the Word of God. There's a new kind of enslavement, a brand new kind of enslavement. Men are using the sword but ignoring its truths. The sword is redemptive when it is used to cut out the sin but leave the sinner whole. However, The sword is retributive when it is used to keep sinners in darkness. The Bible will bless those that use it for good, and the Bible will repay those that use it for evil. It's redemptive and retributive at the same time. That's why you find in Revelation 13, verse 10, these words, the retributive side of God's word. This is specifically pointed out to that very power described in Revelation 13, Chapter 13, The Power of Rome. It used God's Word to take many lives. And notice the retributive aspects of the Word of God. Here it is in Revelation, chapter 13, verse 10. The Bible says, He who leads into captivity shall what? Go into captivity. Get this now. He who kills with the what? Sword must be killed with the what? Sword. And the Lord is saying at the end, Hold on, saints. Here is the patience of the saints. God's going to pay back those leaders that took millions of Christians' lives during the Dark Ages. That's why there's a judgment. People do evil things and they think they get away with it. I was so troubled when I heard about, you know, right now we're in a very volatile political environment. I heard about a lawyer that didn't like the fact that there was a Latino judge, a Latina judge in his community. He didn't like the fact that in his community this Latina young lady rose to a high-office And he didn't like the fact that she was a judge. So what he did, he posed as a a letter carrier. rang the doorbell of her house. Dressed up like a guy from UPS or FedEx. Shot her son and killed him. Shot the husband three times and injured him. All because he was angry that she had risen to the office of judge. And he thought it should have been his. Then he took his life. They found him dead in a car a couple of days later. He'd think he got away with it, but he'll have to face that in the judgment. There's a judgment. Do not perpetrate evil and think that by taking your life, you're going to, no, there's a process. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He killed, therefore he must face the same judgment. That's why God's word is clear. In a world that ignores God's word, there's a day of reckoning coming. Look at Revelation 19, verse 15. There's a day of reckoning coming. People that are ignoring God's word today that think the word of God is just for a kooks or people that can't do better, there's a day of reckoning coming. Revelation 19, 15 talks about this day of reckoning. When the heavens depart and Jesus, with the army on white horses, are coming to the earth. The Bible describes our Lord in this way. Now out of his mouth goes what? A sharp sword that with it he should, notice, not guide, but strike the nations. Because they didn't want to hear it. Now he's coming back in a retributive way and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. What a terrible thing to face. There are people today that listen to God's word and their husbands that say to their wives, that's for you. Their wives that say to their husbands, that's for you. Their parents that say to their children and children to their parents, that religion works for you, but keep it away from me. Brothers and sisters, there's a day coming. If you're watching, if you're listening, There is a day coming that if we don't align ourselves with God's word today on the redemptive side, we will face it on the retributive side. There's no getting away from the word of God. The word of God called the world into existence and the word of God will usher this terrible world off the scene. The word of God is permanent. When John the Revelator wrote this verse, he was a prisoner in the camp of Rome. He was on the island of Patmos. And he understood that iron represented that Roman kingdom. That's why he said, he himself will rule with a rod of iron. Now, something that I learned when I look at the verse, the rod of iron was not only synonymous to the edge of the shepherd's staff, but it was also the very instrument or the very metal that the Romans used to make their swords. The Roman sword was the strongest sword because there are other nations that made their swords out of bronze. It's softer. The Romans made their swords out of iron. And when that sword was made out of iron, you don't try to fight a Roman sword that's iron with steel or bronze or copper or any other metal. It was sharp and it never lost its dullness. That's why John used that iron in this description of Jesus to talk about what is going to happen when he comes to rule. But there's another amazing application in the Bible about the sword. The sword is a powerful instrument When you begin to study God's word, as the Lord put this in my mind earlier this week, my wife said to me, what could you say about a sword? I said, honey, what can I say about a sword? I can't say anything. What can the Bible say about it? A whole lot. Let's look at another interesting lesson about the sword found through the words of Jesus. We're going to go now to Matthew chapter 26. Very amazing application of the sword in God's word. This was when Jesus was being arrested. He was facing betrayal. He was about to be taken to the judgment hall to be be interrogated and eventually persecuted. But let's now pick it up at verse 47 in Matthew chapter 26. We read now these words. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude, what do they have? With swords and clubs, this is you got to watch. This is very really amazing. They came after Jesus with swords and clubs. Came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, "Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him." Verse forty-nine. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, "Greetings, Rabbi," and did what? Kissed him. But Jesus said to him, "Friend." <laughs> why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. That's a whole nother sermon right there. in verse 51, and suddenly one of those who were with Jesus, one of those who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew what? His sword. Struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put away what? Your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now we found the word sword used four times in this, in this narrative. I had to pause. I literally had to pull out my Bible commentaries, Ryan, and start searching why. And I had to get the insight. I said, "Why wow, I've never found a story where the sword is talked about four times. I learned these very valuable lessons. One, How are you going to trap with a sword the one who is the sword? (laughs) How are you going to use a sword to trap Jesus when all he had to do then is open his mouth and say a word and those soldiers would have gone up in in an ash cloud? So they didn't trap him. It was the moment of his arrest. He came to the earth for that moment. You cannot trap with a sword the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. That's the first lesson I learned. There may be more you might find. But the next one I learned was, you can't use a sword to defend Jesus. Jesus does not need us to defend him because he came to defend us. Amen? He took out his sword and cut off the soldier's ear. Jesus said, look at verse 53, this blew me away, look at verse 53, Peter with his measly little dagger, it was a dagger by the way, took out and cut off the, Well, like, what are you going to do Peter, is that going to stop the mob, look what Jesus said in verse 53, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Do you know how many angels that is? Jesus is saying, all I got to do is say, dad, and he will send 80,000 angels. Come on, somebody. The angel of the Lord encampeth around about those who fear him and deliver them. God could send 80,000 angels to your side when you say, daddy, Abba, father. That's why the apostle says, Abba, father, from which we cry, Abba, father. When you're in trouble, say, dad, he knows exactly who you mean. He'll send angels to your side. Can you say amen? Jesus said, Peter, you can't. You, you think I need your help? I got 80,000 angels. You don't see them. But they're waiting for God's commands. I'm having to whisper to them, hold off. This is not your moment. I need you in the resurrection. <laughs> I don't need you now. You wait, wait a while. I came down for this. Angels, Ellen White says in Desire of ages, angels, angels were wanting to intervene when they saw how Jesus was being persecuted, but he said, this is my hour, I've come into the world for this reason, brethren, he did that for you and me, can you say amen, he was willing to face the edge of the sword because he loved you and I so much, but there's something else, there's something else, Jesus said to Peter, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its place, put your sword in its place. What did Jesus mean by that? What was Jesus saying to Peter? Peter, there's a place for your sword. The sword is God's word. Where did David put the sword? Look where David, the psalmist, put the sword. This is where the sword needs to be. Don't use your sword to be cutting people's ears off. <laughs> this is what you need to do with your sword. David, Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word, can I say Sword. Your sword have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Use your sword on yourself. Some people like to beat up other people with the sword. That's not the right thing to do. We should not use God's sword to injure people. That's what Jesus was saying. Peter, put your sword in its place. Don't take out your sword and hurt people with it. Let me me say something to those of you that know the truth. Don't ever use your understanding of doctrine to beat up other Christians. They love the Lord like you love the Lord. They just don't have the knowledge you have. The Jews left us enough examples to not to follow their examples. They talked down to people. They treated them like they were less than. The word of God should be used on us. We should use the word of God on us. Hide God's word in your heart. We should not use the word of God as an instrument of cruelty. It's an instrument of enlightenment and healing. Use the word of God. That's why he says, let your light so shine. He never said, Barbara, let your light so burn. Don't burn up folk. I learned that the hard way. When I was a young man, I was always ready for a biblical fight. (laughs) Matter of fact, Max Mace, the head of Heritage Singers, told me years ago, he said, John, you've mellowed out through the years. Because I used to be on the bus in the Heritage Singers at the time. When I was traveling on the road, we had a young lady that was not an Adventist. We just had only one non-Adventist and eventually had two. Then when I left, they had five. And then I tell you, it really kind of went downhill from there. But there was this one, one young lady who loved to tackle me on doctrinal topics. And she'll call her pastor or call her father. And they always send me notes or mail me stuff. And I'd go when everybody else is sleeping, I'm in my room like on Sabbath afternoon writing all these defense texts down so that when I get back on the bus before the concert, I could beat her up with my 35 verses I just found in the Crudence Concordance. I was a, I was a vicious young man. Okay, while everybody's sleeping, I'm in my Crudence Concordance. We didn't have no computers back then. You had to turn the pages in an actual book. Right? And we didn't have any computer to write it down yet to write it by hand. I still have those papers in my file to remind me how far we've come. And I get on the bus and I said, now, before we went to sleep, this is what you said, but I got 35 texts to prove you're wrong. <laughs> 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 and I would say, she survived me. And we saw her many, many years later in St. Louis, our good friend, Becky Chuba. We love her all our heart. She said, John Lowe McCain, I just love you. We saw her in a restaurant. We survived. We, saw, we survived each other. And, you know, I'm still, I still love God's word, but I don't use it the way I used to use it. I love people, and I want everybody to make the kingdom. But one thing I'm not going to do is compromise God's word. When I compromise it in my own life, I let God's word get me back on track. But never use God's word as an instrument of cruelty. Follow the example of Jesus. Notice what he said in Isaiah 42, verse 3. Look at this. Isaiah 42, verse 3, the words of Christ. When you meet people that are not where you are, notice these very valuable words. The Lord says to us in Isaiah 42, verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. There are some people barely hanging on. Don't use God's word to break them. And a smoking flax he will not quench. There are some people who are barely holding on. The fire of their hope is just almost going out. Don't take out your Christian water and just pour it on it and douse it. Some people are that way. I've heard Christians say some horrible things to other people. You know, I heard that so and so is in the hospital, they're sick. Good for them. They should have known better. I said, that's horrible. They're holding on for dear life. Last time I saw them, they were, come on now, really? Is that how you feel? You better go and pray for them. (laughs) Don't quench them. Don't break them. The Bible said, if you are that way, he will bring forth justice for truth. God will hold you accountable. He'll call you to that. He'll make sure that you are justly approached. Let us never break a person who's about to be broken or use our knowledge to pour on somebody's flame that is about to die. Because Jesus said this is what he does. Isaiah, 40, Isaiah 9 and verse 2. This is what Jesus, his mission is all about when it comes to the light. The people who walked in darkness, the Bible says, have seen a great light. They need to see that light in your life if you allow the word of God to permeate the way you live. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them, what happened? A light has shined. A light has shined. When the word of God is in your life, a light is shining. Angie and I were down in Southern California once. We were trying to find a friend's house during Thanksgiving. We were living in California at the time. We didn't know where we were going. So we stopped at a Marie calendars back then. You know... If you lived in California, you might know Marie Calendars. Anybody? Great. The best thing they have is cornbread. Marie Calendars cornbread. You know, the pies, too. That, too. Banana cream pie. Don't get me started, Bob. But uh, we walked into Marie Calendars to ask for directions. There were no GPSs back then. So we said, I know it's around here somewhere. So we're walking out of the the Marie Calendars, and this guy walking in, And he's on, we don't know him, he don't know us. And he says to us, y'all are Christians, aren't you? Excuse me, he said, I can tell you're a Christian. Are you Christian? I said, yes. He said, how do you know? He said, I could just see it all over you. Have a good day. We didn't do anything. We We didn't have a Bible. It was just on our way to a Thanksgiving dinner. What am I saying? When the Lord is in your life, people will see it. Just recently, let me see, I could talk about this. Barbara's here. We went to see Colleen Hauser. And Colleen Hauser has a cat. What's the cat's name? Yeah, what's it again? A Denny is the cat's name. Denny doesn't like men at all. <laughs> Denny don't like men. Denny walked right up to me, bowed his head, and let me touch him on the head and rubbed his head on my leg. And they said, What? Then he does not like men. I said, Elder Brooks said to me, even an animal can tell who a Christian is. And I thought, wow. He said, if you walk in the house and your dog runs from you, you're not a Christian, as Elder Brooks would say. <laughs> if your animal runs to hide when you walk in the house, you're not a Christian. Even an animal can tell who a Christian is. <laughs> and they thought it was a fluke. So I said, it's not a fluke. So I put my hand out and then he came again and licked my fingertips. And all three ladies said, wow, he just doesn't like men at all. What happened? I so, said, so it's not a fluke. So I was leaving and I said, you got to do it a certain way. So I bowed down and went like this, put my hand out to Denny and he licked my hand again before I left. She. Yes. Well, that's why she didn't like men as a she. <laughs> I, I, should, I knew that. I should have known better. But, you know, my point is, if the, if the word of God is dwelling in you richly and is transforming your life somebody ought to be able to tell, right? You could often tell who people are just by meeting them. Somebody ought to be able to tell because the reason why we don't have to hurt people with God's word is because God will settle the issue himself. He will settle the issue. When every appeal has been made, he'll settle the issue himself. Don't try to settle issues that are God's responsibility to settle. Look at John 12 and verse 48. Jesus talked about how he's going to settle this issue. He says in John 12, 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. And the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Don't have to worry about me. Don't have to worry about that. I'll go ahead and deal with that in the last days. You don't have to do that. Leave that up to me. I'll handle that. That's why Paul the apostle makes it very clear He makes it clear that the Word of God is what's going to hold us all into accountability. I'm going to read a scripture that I didn't put on the screen, but Paul talked about one of the best descriptions of the Word of God is in Ephesians 6. He talked about that, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But you might ask yourself the question, why is something so remedial and elementary being emphasized and reemphasized here this morning? Why would adherence to the word of God be so imperative in the last days? Thought about it? Why? Why make following God's word so critical in the closing hours of earth's history? You know, when you look back on where we came from and where we're headed, I must say this this morning, we are living in the last chapters Of the great controversy. We're living on the last three chapters of the DVD called End Times. But from Eden to the present. It has been Satan's determined purpose. To create a cavern. Between the name Christian. And belief in God's word. I want to say that again. Because I didn't make a mistake. He wants to create a cavern between the name Christian and belief, and practice of God's word. He wants to say, all you need is the name. As Isaiah 4 one says, only give us your name, only let us have your name to take away our reproach. So today, if you hear the word Christian, it doesn't mean they follow the Bible. Why is that the case? The same thing Satan did in the Garden of Eden, he did to the Jewish nation. God had committed to them oracles that you couldn't deny. He gave them more truth than you can buy in J.C. Penney's. And what did they do with it? They rejected it. They turned away from it. They denied it. They would not share with the nations around them. That's the reason why they were always in battle, because they wouldn't live out the creeds that God had given to them. But they kept the Sabbath. They ate the right foods. They had the right day but they didn't have the right heart. Is it possible that the devil could be trying to do that again? Look at how Paul the Apostle summarized what eventually happened to the children of Israel. Romans 9, verse 6. He says this, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Don't blame it on God's word. Here's the problem. For they are not all Israel, who are Israel. Are you ready? I'm going to say something. You could duck. Are you ready to duck? They are not all Seventh-day Adventists who are Seventh-day Adventists. I can tell you right now, I know people that are walking away from this church, pastors who are following false doctrines, ending up on the outside, now calling us deceived, and they're in deeper darkness than they ever have been. I can tell you the greatest enemy against a Bible-believing Christian in the last days is a person who used to believe the Bible, because they know it so well they're going to use it against us. The Bible said that they will come out from you; they'll draw disciples after, away after themselves; they'll pull them out; they'll deceive them with words that are clever; they'll deceive the hearts of the simple. And when they walk away from the church, I know of teacher. I know of a teacher in the Adventist Church that was teaching in California, he's one of the greatest haters of Sabbath keepers. He used to be a Seventh-day Adventist. He's written book after book after book after book trying to prove the Sabbath is wrong. And I asked that man, why don't you have a debate with me? He wouldn't do it. Because it, it doesn't take 15 minutes to prove the Sabbath is correct. But you know what happened? For those who didn't want to keep the Sabbath, who used to be Seventh-day Adventists, they're now following him calling themselves, we're free now, we're liberated. I just, somebody just the other day on the internet said to me on Facebook, you ought to walk away from the church and follow us and do what we're doing now. And as I said last Sabbath, I'm going to leave the ship and get into your little rubber dinky. Honestly, not, as the young people would say, but we often apply the scriptures in the Bible to those that don't know truth. We read certain verses and we say, That's for those who are rejecting the Sabbath, the commandments, the state of the dead, the the, the teaching of the second coming of Christ. No, when you read the passage, you can't turn away from truth unless you had truth. Look at the Apostle Paul. He makes it clear. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4. This is a warning. When Paul issued this warning, he was talking about those who had sound doctrine. He said, for the time will come, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4, the time will come, When they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, can I pause here? The shepherd's rods, the brimsmead, the Fordites, the Davidians, those who follow David Koresh, those Adventists who died in the camp of Jim Jones, and the list goes on and on. When your roots are not deep enough, you're here for the wrong reason. If you don't have a connection with Christ that's more than something external, more than something emotional, if your connection to this church is not substantive, if you have no functioning capacity to, ca- to carry this message forward, you are just taking up space, and it's a matter of time before your roots will be revealed as having no connection to the ground. You know how I know that? Not until a flood came, Not until the flood comes can you know what's really buckled down. If it ain't buckled down, the flood is going to take it away. There's a flood coming. And there are some people swept away by the flood of compromise and emotion and whatever reason, but according to their own desires, they had other plans other than the truth. Because they have itching ears, they will heap for themselves teachers, heap up for themselves teachers. They'll find somebody who say what they want to hear. And what the end result will be, they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And when they, when they fall in love with this fable, they'll say that you are in dark when they are more in dark than they've ever been. It's amazing how darkness makes you think you see what you really can't see. And that's what the devil said, you'll be like God. If you, want to, if you accept darkness, you'll be just like God. No, no greater lie. That's what happened to Israel's. Israel's downfall was gradual. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 46 and 47. Israel's downfall was gradual, but consistent. The very nation that Jesus came into the world to make a light to the rest of the world rejected God's word repeatedly and rejected Jesus eventually. The apostle Paul and Barnabas said these words to a nation that rejected Christ. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you when? First. But since you do what? Reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we do what? We turn to the Gentiles. What happened to the Jewish leaders can be described in the modern sense as Craig Goshell describes in his book, Christian Atheism. I ran into this. I began going through it earlier in the week. And thankfully, he made available the entire outline of his book on the internet. I thought, wow, amazing. The Christian atheist. I thought, what an oxymoron. But when I read his when I read his thesis and I read the content of what I went through so far, I thought, wow, he's got something here. Listen to what he said as he describes the reason why he wrote this book, The Chris- Christian Atheist, he said, The more I look, the more I found Christian atheists everywhere. Craig Grushel knows his subject all too well. After over a decade of successful ministry, he had to make a painful self admission. Although he believed in God, he was leading his church like God didn't exist. Groeschel's personal journey toward a more authentic God-honoring life is more relevant than ever. Christians and Christian atheists everywhere will be nodding their heads as they are challenged to take their own honest moment and ask the question, am I putting my whole faith in God but still living as if everything was up to me? There's some things he brings out in the book. I'm, gonna give you, I'm just going to give you four as I close today. I'm gonna, if, you wanna, if you want to rest, you've got to tune in tonight to Vespers. It's going to be profound and eye-opening. And this is a book that I thought could cross denominational lines because the points he brings out is relevant to Christians in general. Christians in general. He said, One of the greatest dangers we face is believing in Jesus and living as though he does not exist. He cited Titus 1 and verse 6 as evidence. He said, They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and disqualified for every good work. They they say, yeah, they sing the songs, they live the life. I mean, they look like they live the life, but if you examine who they are, there's no evidence that they even know God. They don't look like Him. They don't sound like Him. They don't want to do what He wants them to do. He said to the disciples once, He said to the Jewish leaders, why call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? That's the category. But they say, I believe in God, and he responds this way, James 2 and verse 19. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So if all you do is believe in God, you're just, I had a sermon many years ago, about 12 years ago. I preached a sermon at the Northern California camp meeting called The Faith of Demons. And that was my main text. If all you have is belief in God, you have nothing more than the faith of demons. Because James said the second danger that he pointed out, the first one is saying we believe in Jesus, but living as though he doesn't exist. And the other one is saying we live by the sword, but don't know how to use it. Whew, did you get that? He said, we live, we say we live by the word, but we don't know how to use it. And he cites James chapter one, verse 22 to 25. Look what he says. But be doers of the word. Be what, friends? Doers. doers of the word, not hearers only. You could hear this sermon and go home and live like a devil. Not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. <laughs> and he leaves us here just like the mirror said it looks. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be what? Blessed in what he does. That's a blessing in what he does. So here's the first point. He said, we are living in an age of Christian atheism, Christian atheism. And I want to tell you, brethren, with the, with the impact of politics on the Adventist church, we have a lot of Christian atheists in Adventism. There are those who live for money. There are those who live for visibility. There are those who live because this is a tradition that my family kept up. If you fall in any of those categories so far, there are those who are more concerned about what presidential candidates are saying than what God's word is saying. There are those who will defend with cursing and anger what a presidential candidate is saying and will argue with their brother or sister because they don't believe in God the way they should. Politics is ripping this part, this church apart, not just here, but Adventism general. That's why some people, more than ever before, people are getting off of Facebook because they're saying, I've seen... 7th Adventism at the most vicious stage. I've seen Christianity at the most vicious stage in this political environment. People cussing at each other. And on the other side, there's some people that I know in the Christian world, very very famous and very visible. they out there singing. They're out there performing. they out there ministering. But when you listen to their rhetoric on the Facebook, you say, do they even believe in God? Here's what he said. This is the reason. Reason number one. I'm just going to give you four today, but tonight, if you tune in, you get the rest. He said, Christian atheists believe in God, but don't know him personally. And he he cited as evidence Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then here's the word. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He said, and this is what amazing point he said, In during the week when you're by yourself, do you live as though God is in the house with you? When you go on the internet, when you're on your phone or your devices, when you're living in the in the city when you're driving, when you go to the store, when you interact with other people that may not be Christians. Does their non-Christianity make you more comfortable than a person who is a Christian? Amazing. I know there are some Christians that are more comfortable around non-Christians because they like the way they live. They don't want too much Jesus. He talked about that. Christians that don't, too, don't want too much Jesus. Just enough. But they don't want to go overboard. But he said, don't forget Knowing Jesus is the apex of eternal life. John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you sent. You got to know Christ personally and intimately. You got to know him in your life. You got to see the hand of God working in your life and in your heart. If you don't see it working, there's a disconnect. Second of the last four, he said, Christian atheists, Believe in God, but they don't fear him. That one caught my attention. And then he cited Proverbs 16, verse 6. He said, if you really fear God, this is what you would do. Proverbs 16:6, 6. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. He said, there are people that practice evil, and by practicing evil, they are proving they don't fear God. I'm not afraid of you, God. I'm going to do what I want, live how I want, watch what I want, say what I want, dress how I want. Who are you that I should obey your voice? Pharaoh Egyptian Christianity. Who are you that I should obey your voice? But when you are not a Christian atheist, you walk as though there was no one else but God and you on the planet. That's real Christianity. God is getting me there every day somebody ought to say amen to that is god getting you there i pray he is he he points out the third of the fourth the third of four he said christian atheists believe in god but are content to remain lukewarm huh i thought man he hit that nail on the head that was a jackhammer right there and he cited revelation three Verse 15 and 16, he said, I know your works. Jesus looking at us and saying, I know your works. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish, I wish you were cold or hot. I could wish that. So then because you are neither lukewarm, because then you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, what am I going to do? I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I just cannot stand warm, lukewarm Christians. They do nothing for me. When you are not a lukewarm Christian, you are not afraid to go all out and show your allegiance for Jesus. You're not ashamed to be called a Christian. You're not ashamed for people to identify who you are. That's why my wife and I have learned, and we have traveled so much, and we have been in places, we've been in the most crowded airports in different parts of the world, and we say we are always being viewed by somebody. Somebody is always watching, and even if nobody's in the airport, God is watching. I'll tell you the stories, but it's not relevant right here. we got to understand we are are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. When you are a Christian that's not an atheist, you are not afraid to show your allegiance of faith in Christ. Not only that, you live a life of commitment to the success of heaven's mission. I must ask the question, what are you doing for the success of heaven's mission? What actively are you doing in your life to cause the gospel to succeed? If you're just sitting in the terminal waiting for the plane to arrive, your Christianity has no value. If all you got to do is sit in the terminal waiting for Jesus to come, Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. He that's not gathering with me is scattering abroad. Don't be content to be a lukewarm Christian. And the last one he cited was this. He said, Christian atheists believe in God, but they don't trust him fully. That was powerful. I know a lot of people like that. When the bills come due, you see them mooing and booing and crying. Oh oh, oh no, I'm not going to pay my bill. I already told you my stories. I'm past that. I'm going to give God what belongs to him. Come on, somebody. And I've learned in many, 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 many ways that when you give God what belongs to him, he will take care of you. David said, y- I was young, now I am old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. That's a promise. When you do what God asks you to, he's going to take care of you. I told you about when I was a young man. I don't have these issues any longer. But When I was a young pastor, one Sabbath morning I decided, Lord, I got my insurance is due on Monday. And my tithes and offerings are to due today. If I don't pay my insurance on Monday, my insurance will be canceled. I can't drive. (laughs) So, Lord, I'll give you a rain check because my insurance is due on Monday. Well, I was in the Northern California mountains living just close to the church. The church was closer to me than that baptismal pool over there, like half the distance. I walk out of my door right into the back of the church. I was in the parsonage. As I walked across there, I got my sermon all typed out. I typed on the typewriter then. It's already in... Ready to be preached. Ryan's got my little notes. The print was real small, like like Ryan's print. Now, Ryan has a little print Bibles. You know, I couldn't see that nowadays. But I was ready to preach, and I walked through the fellowship hall to the pulpit, and the, the organist, we had a church, we had two ages, very old, very young. We filled in the middle as we continued. But I walked up to that pulpit behind my 89-year-old head elder, Dr. Keziah, who was still flying planes, I thought, my God, he's still flying planes at that age. And when he did the opening prayer, a voice from heaven said to me, you can't preach for me if you don't trust me. And I had a blank check in my top pocket and I pulled it out. And in my humble arrogance, if there is such a thing. Have you ever written out a check? Kind of like say, God, I hope you're watching. Because if my bill don't get paid, I wrote out that $75 check. I'm just overemphasizing. My heart was at a fragile place. I wrote that check out for $75 knowing that's, that's what I had to pay my insurance on Monday. And I put it in that offering envelope, put it in that plate, and I watched it go away. I forgot about it. That night I went to the post office. Kind of like here, there's a post office down in town. It was like how we live, but they didn't did, they periodically did a home delivery. But we had a post office box. Went to the post office box to get my mail Saturday night. Opening the letters, and we opened one letter from somebody we never met before, and there was a check for two hundred and thirty-eight dollars. You do the math. That's three times seventy-five. And then 13 extra dollars just because God can do it. And I pause in the middle of that two lane street just like this. And all you saw was my brake lights come on immediately. Never thinking about the fact that I might get run into by somebody and pulled over and just thank God. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And in that mountain home where I only made, where I only made $500 a month. God sustained us for two years, and never once did we have to beg. There were Sunday mornings when our door would ring while I'm in the living room on my couch praying, Father, we don't have any food in the refrigerator. We have family coming, and the doorbell is ringing. Somebody's knocking, and they said, this morning when I woke up, God told me my pastor had a need, and they drove 37 miles over the mountain just to give me $100. I'm telling you, friends, you faithful God will take care of you. Don't don't say you believe in God, but act like, but don't fully trust him. Trust him. Trust him when there seems to be no logical reason to put everything on the line. He brought this out. I love the way he said this. And this is in my ministry. I've learned this now. He said, until you put everything on his God's scale, he'll never put anything on your scale. <laughs> you got to get to that place where it's like, who's going to bail me out if I put all that money in the offering plate? God said, no. No. That's all the money you have. That's not all the money I have. Amen, somebody? And he cited Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Very well known, but I'm going to close on these these two last texts. He said this. Come on, let's say it together. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Are you ready? Are you ready, Christians? Here we go. Together, trust in the Lord with how much? All your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he what shall direct your path do you believe that only until uh, if you don't if you believe it you put everything on god's scale and god will open you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you say lord my scale is not big enough god just broke my scale (laughs) that's what i want to say what about you i want god to break my scale Thank you for that little break my scale anytime, heaven. You'll never know. When you believe God, you live as though you believe every promise that God has made and you are willing to follow his word, ignorant of the outcome. Who cares about the outcome? God says, I have a future and a hope for you. If he says that, you're going to distrust him. Who do you know that can say to you, I know exactly what's going to happen with the next five years? Nobody. And when you fully trust God, you no longer live on the fence of fear. You live fearlessly. And I end with this quotation in one final text. The Lord gave me this yesterday. Don't trust God because you know the destination. Trust him in the journey. Trust him in the journey. He told me where I'm headed, but I'm not going to wait till I get there to trust him. I ooh, that was close. I'm going to say, Lord, I don't know this road, but since you're driving, I'll just be the passenger. Amen. So- Be the passenger. Don't put that bumper sticker that God is your co-pilot. Make him the pilot, because you can't see through clouds. So I ask you these questions. Why should we live as though God's word is true? Why should we trust the Bible? Why should we read it and take it to heart? Why? Why should the Bible be the most pertinent book in our lives? Why should the Bible be the number one book that we live by? I'll tell you why it's so clear. Zorro left a mark on people's clothing. The sword of God's word will leave a mark on your life and the life of everybody that comes in contact with you if you live by the sword. Today I'm going to say there's a reason I live by the sword. There's a reason why my wife and I live by the sword. Here it is. It's so simple. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. He knows what's going on way down inside and of joints and marrow. And only God's word is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I want to be a spiritual Zorro. I'm going to resurrect my favorite character. <laughs> when I meet people, I'm going to go, but I'm going to use a W, leave a word. I want to live my life that'll be clear on whose team I'm living. Anybody today want to just get that sword out? The sword. Isn't amazing how the cross looks like a sword? sword, that's right I want you to go home this week and, and start a new relationship with your Bible get it out, if you can't find it, call a church member they'll help you find it get your Bible learn how to use that sword stop saying I don't know where it is it's in there, but you'll never know what's in your closet until you start looking and the same way you'll never know what's in God's word until but that becomes the focal point Turn off the devices. Turn on God's word. Slow down your brain. As one person said, we saw a documentary, he said, the mind was never created by God to assimilate so many things so fast. The Christian life is not a flight. It's not a train ride. It's not a rocket ride. It's a walk. Why a walk? Because it takes time. Study God's word this week, friends. Why? Why? That's the only thing the devil's afraid of, the sword of the spirit. How many of you want to get that sword sharpened this week? Would you stand with me? Now God's writing it down. He's going to come to your house this week and say, hey, I'm I'm here for a sword study. He's going to wait at your dinner table by the side of your bed. Wherever you decide in your house is going to be the place that you sit down. He's going to be waiting there if you can't find your Bible locate it this week put it closer to your bed than your phone put it closer to your bed than your remote put it closer to your heart than anything else you have and when the day comes that you face the adversary all you need is three words it is written if it worked for Jesus it will work for us loving father in heaven a simple yet Beautiful way to say that we must have the word of God hidden in our hearts in this age of multiple distractions, everything calling for our attention and getting our attention. We pray that we can take out that sword, run our hand down that blade and see whether it's dull or whether it's sharp. And then we can sit down with that spiritual heavenly file and begin to sharpen those dull edges. We can find those texts again that once thrilled our souls. We can back, go back and look at the beginning of our Bibles where, that were given to us on our baptismal day. We can look at that date and pause and remember that was a special date with, that we said, Father, I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. But something somewhere along the way interrupted that. If you're a young person, you're going to find a Bible You're going to begin a relationship as a teenager with Jesus. You're going to say, I don't want to be 20 or 30 years from now as ignorant as I am now. I could be well ahead of the curve if I start searching God's word now. Help us to develop a new appetite for living things, not dead things created by men, but a living book that is created by God Help us to dive into this swimming pool that is so deep and recognize that we could float on the promises of God. Help us to walk into this forest that is filled with trees that have every leaf as a promise from God's word. And we can pick a promise a day and never exhaust your words. Help us, Father, to stand on the seashore and look down at the grains of sand. and Remember, every grain of sand is a promise that you have made to us and we can never exhaust your promises and help us to look at the endless sky and recognize that one day on the horizon we will see the word of God coming to take us home we will give way to the living word as the written word has prepared us for that great day give us the sword may it be with us and may it shape us For your eternal kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen Amen. and amen.